the great opportunity to get to know our young more if you're interested in our UF. You can sign up. You don't have to sign up. Uh, we're not uh, in the business of doing that. So anyway, take a look at it. You can also join our Facebook group. It's at MSURUF on Facebook. Uh, that's a good way to keep plugged in and know what's going on. So how's everybody? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Midterm exams-ish? Next week, mostly. This week for some people. Uh, okay, so some of us are going through it, some of us are preparing for it. Uh, deep breaths, and with the good air, out with the bath, okay? You'll make it, I promise you. Uh, so, anyway, um, it's a good time in your education. Uh, so, I'm Sid Druin. If you don't know me, I'm the campus minister for this thing called RUF, Reform University Fellowship. We are a Christian ministry on campus here at New Mexico State. Let me tell you a little bit about RUF. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the fighter and the lover. True. I'm a student on their third major and on the 10-year graduation plan. And for the student who came in as a junior in standing, carries a red grading pen in their pocket, and drinks coffee and gripes with the other teachers in the faculty lounge. Yes, you too. RUF exists for those who are here for all the wrong reasons and those who are here for all the right reasons. In other words, wherever you are, whoever you are, however you are, thanks for coming. Uh, we hope that RUF gets to know you and you get to know RUF. Um, do me a favor, both sides of the new and the old. So old timers, people who've been here more than once or twice or thrice, um, could you go ahead and introduce yourself to someone new? Not right now. I'm not going to make the awkward green team right now but maybe afterwards. And those of you who are new, um, take a deep breath and, and turn to one person left or right of you or behind or before, not now, after, after, and say hello and get to know somebody. Um, anyway, so the other way to get more involved and to know RUF more is to look at joining one of the plunges of the Bible studies. Um, we meet every week on those things. I'd recommend a Bible study RUF, we believe that our community is enhanced through studying the Bible together, and that also our study of the Bible is enhanced by community. So take a look at one of those if you're interested. Uh, come talk to me. And we did highlight one, the ladies' study, International Delights, right, Krista? Uh, Monday night in the house. Is this really awkward? Yes. Okay. <laughs> what is this? Is this halfway through a... a, a Lift, raise the roof, so I'm just going to go parade over here. Okay. Awesome. Um, okay. Finally, International Lights, anybody? Uh, tonight, after, we have, a, we have a custom. Good times over gyros, zeros, heroes, whatever you want to call them. Waffle. And coffee. Um, come and join us for that. It's a good way to get to know some folks. If you need directions or more info, a ride, etc., Come talk to me or Jen. Raise your hand, Jen. There you go. She's working the PowerPoint. Um, so come talk to us. Or anyone up here as well. Like, not now. <laughs> All right, let's get through the soccer list. Okay, so uh, this semester in large group, we're studying uh, the, the characters in the Bible of Elijah and Jonah. The story behind these two people. And, we're really kind of tracing the heart of God through that. That's what the series is called, Tracing the Heart of God. 
And we're looking at these two guys in the Bible because there's a lot of us in them, and there's a lot of them in us. And then also their stories highlight God's character and his story in a beautiful way. And so what we want to do is understand God's story and Elijah and, and Jonah's story better. Um, this Tonight we're continuing our study of Jonah through the book of Jonah. You know it's a short book and you thought, man, he's going to get through this in like a week. What week is this? And we're still cruising. Okay, chapter 3 still. We won't make it to 4. Sorry. I just point you. Um, if you haven't been with us, or like we took a break last week and had a guest preacher. Um, I guess we is a, is a strong word. I took a break and we had a guest preacher. Um, maybe that makes it hard to remember. Or maybe you haven't been with us and you're not familiar with the book of Jonah. I just want you to invite you to sit back. <laughs> okay. Maybe put your hands behind your head. Relax a second. Um, and... I'm going to catch you up on what you're missing in your life. Look okay. at Jonah. So here's, here's how it goes. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Nineveh is a scary, violent place to work. Okay? And Jonah goes to Tarshish, which is a sunny, tropical place to vacation. God sends a storm and a big fish to convince Jonah to come back to Nineveh and to his senses. Not because God is a mean boss who hates vacation. Okay? but because he cares about Jonah and he cares about Nineveh. And after some time in the, big, in the small intestines of a big fish, Jonah comes to himself and realizes that um, maybe I should go to Nineveh. He warms to the idea. And he goes and delivers a message. And his message goes like this. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Simple, clear, and awfully intense. Uh, this message is the background of our passage this evening. And we're going to look at verses 5 through 10. That message is what causes verses 5 through 10 in large part. Um, tonight we're going to look at how, the scary, how scary Nineveh responds to a scary but hopeful message through Jonah from God. So turn your Bibles if you have one to Jonah chapter 3 verses 5 through 10. If you don't, just look at your bulletin. It's on the inside. right? So it's green. Can't miss it. Neonish, pastel, whatever you want to call it. Okay. Would you stand for the reading of Scripture? Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, and the greatest of them is the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes, or dirt. And he issued a proclamation and published the and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Friends, the heaven and earth will pass away before one letter, one letter of the word of God becomes void. Father, uh, I pray uh, now that you would be present in a mighty way. Lord, we need rescue. Need leading. Uh, we're helpless, we're lost, we're harassed. 
Mother Nalia and I. Um, and I pray, Father, uh, that you would help shine uh, a light onto our hearts to teach us uh, who we are and who you are more clearly. Uh, help us to examine this week in the light of your scripture. But this time would be a time that changes our perspective that changes our hearts, that changes the way we think and feel and what we do. And I pray, Father, um, because you promised these things, that your, your word would not return back to you empty, but, Father, that your word would accomplish glorious things, uh, glorious things for your people and for uh, you, our Lord God. We pray these things in your Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks. of Nineveh with a one-sentence declaration and everybody and their mother, including their farm animals, decides that he's right and it's time to turn from evil and turn towards God? What in the world? What in the world is going on in Nineveh? And furthermore, why should we give a rip? Well, let's do the first question first. That's a good historical question. Thanks for asking. Um, I know you guys were dying to know. Uh, let me put it briefly. Everything that could go wrong for Nineveh was going wrong. They were, things were going very, very poorly for this giant city. Um, in the period of 40 years, somewhere between 782 and 745 BC, um, in an area in modern-day Iraq, Nineveh was in trouble. They were in trouble. They had a drought and starvation for the better part of six years. In addition, they had tribes of peoples from the north the Manet, Manet, I'm not going to be able to do this, Manates, Manats, Medai, and the Aratru, were advancing into Nineveh with war, rape, and pillage on their minds, and they were within 100 miles of the capital of Nineveh. They had enemies on the outside, but Nineveh also had rebellion on the inside. Local nobles had taken control of all of Nineveh, except for the very city itself. That's why in verse 7 you see the edict, right? this proclamation that says it's from the kings and his nobles. Further, this is probably why he's called the king of Nineveh and not the king of Assyria, which is the emperor, emperor or the empire, I should say. Because he only controls that city, that's it. And to top it off, there's this incredible dark moment. A solar eclipse in 763 BC. Now, you know, that's the sort of thing that we get a cardboard box out of elementary school for. But um, in the ancient world, the solar eclipse meant a lot of different things. If it happened during the king's reign, it meant that, say, you were a king, you had a 0% popular approval rating within a night, okay? and the divine vote of no confidence for your government. Basically, the Ninevites were up a creek without a paddle. And no matter how hard the people tried, no matter how hard the king tried, nothing seemed to work. Things just didn't get better. The harder they farmed, the more they cracked out on their people, the more violently they fought, the drought, the rebellion, the enemies just got stronger. Nineveh was fighting fire with fire, and the fire just got hotter and brighter and bigger and way out of control. 
And this desperation made Nineveh willing to get humble, willing to listen to God. Maybe, just maybe, the God who knew they were in trouble might be able to rescue them too. Maybe, just maybe, he would pour down water from heaven that would quench the thirsty land and extinguish the violence. But the Bible isn't just offering an intriguing history lesson. Okay. I know you're in a classroom. That's going to be hard to believe. I'm not like going through PowerPoint slides. Okay. Welcome to Nineveh, 8th century BC. Um, in many ways, Nineveh's problem is our problem. Okay. In many ways, uh, the times in our lives that we have are a lot like 782 to 4, 745 BC in Nineveh. There are crises in our lives when everything falls apart. And we can relate to that. There are times when we're crying because we know deep down inside, we have no answers. We have no answers for what's going on. Everything we try fails. The shatter of broken promises deafens. Broken promises to ourselves. Everything we try doesn't work. We get desperate, we get defeated, and we start fighting with ourselves. We fight loneliness by making ourselves more alone. We fight anxiety by getting more anxious about our anxiety. We fight our brokenness by trying out more brokenness. We fight our violence and sin with more violence and sin. It's like this. We're stuck in a hole, and we're trying to dig our way out of it. Does anyone have those moments? All you're doing is you're digging in, and you're digging down, and you think somehow that's going to get you out and up out of the hole. We're trying to fix sin, we're trying to fix the sin against us and the sin within us, and we're trying to fix the selfishness with more self-focus. But the Bible, this passage in particular, gives us a unique perspective. And this unique perspective gives us two helpful insights, and I'm going to say them a couple times. First, there's a solution to self-failure. Whether you want to call it that or not, there's a solution to self-failure. And it's called turning from self-alpher and turning towards God. So there's a solution to self-failure. It's called turning from self-effort and turning towards God. This is also called repentance. And we see this in incredible detail, verses 5 through 10. Okay, second insight. Self-failure doesn't just happen at certain times. Self-failure doesn't just happen at certain times. It's happening all the time. Self-failure is happening all the time. Look, Nineveh, Nineveh's problem wasn't just a few bad decades in the 700s BC. Nineveh's problem was that each person in Nineveh had an evil way and violence that was in his hands. And that problem was before, during, and after the 700s. And so too are our problems, our misdirected ways, our petty, vicious things that we do. Our sin is not just a problem at certain times. Sin is a problem all of the time. So this means that we need to repent every moment. Whether for the first time or the thousandth time. Whether you're not a Christian here, whether you're a new Christian, whether you've been a Christian for as long as you can remember. All of us need to repent, to turn away from trying to fix ourselves and our sins. And we need to stop trying to reconstruct the broken parts of us and other people. 
Instead, we have to call on God and surrender in the name of Jesus. Look, and that's really just the point of Jonah chapter 3. Right? These verses, verses 5 through 10, are basically saying this. Lay down your weapons and surrender. Because in Jesus, God laid down his life and surrendered for his people. Okay, so lay down your weapons and surrender. Why? Because God, in Jesus Christ, in a man of Nazareth, laid down his life and surrendered for his people. The passage is neatly divided into two interrelated pieces. Okay? Verses 5 through 9, the focus is Ninevites surrender to God. That's, that is our repentance. Verses uh, 10, basically, not verses, but verse, the focus shifts to God, to God's surrender, and this mysterious thing called relenting. Okay? So, verses 5 through 9, repentance revisited. We've been here once before. And verse 10, surprising surrender. So let's begin with another look at repentance. And we're going to look at this time instead of Nineveh, instead of inside of Jonah. So the last few weeks we've been looking at Jonah, and in particular it's been a moment where he had himself thrown off the boat that was a moment of repentance. This week we're looking at the Ninevites. We're looking at the Assyrians and how they handle repentance. And it's really beautiful. If you guys look with me in verses 5 through 9, you see a beautiful, close look at what repentance and how it works. And by exploring the details of Nineveh's surrender, we can see the details of how we might turn from ourselves and turn towards God. And what that might look like in our lives. Alright. First off, it's pretty obvious. The people and the king here are putting on sackcloth and are fasting. Okay. And this is where you kind of place over I already gave you an ancient history lesson, you're like, oh man, more. This really is a class disguise. Um, and that's really not what we're looking at. Um, in verses 5 through 8, those are just signs. And what those are signs of, and I want you to understand this, repentance is an attitude, and repentance is an attitude, and that attitude is humility. Okay? So repentance is an attitude, and that attitude is humility. And sackcloth and fasting are signs of that attitude. Okay? But I want you to understand this too, and I, again, the Assyrians weren't accustomed to sackcloth and fasting. That wasn't their way of dealing with problems. Okay? They're taking on the ancient Israel practice. This is what the people of God in the Old Testament did when they got in trouble. They went to the sackcloth, they went to the fasting. But you know what the Assyrians did? They just sort of found a way to appease the situation, right? to massage the gods, say the right thing at the right time, in the right way, or do the right thing. A good ritual, or a good incantation. But look, the God of the universe is not a spoiled child. So appeasing them with the right thing at the right time, or saying the right thing at the right time, is not going to help. The Ninevites understood this, and my question for us is, do we understand that? Do we understand that the God of the universe is not a spoiled child. I think sometimes that we slip into an Assyrian view of God. And let me tell you what it looks like. It looks like keeping God at arm's length by good behavior, rituals, and saying all the right things in our prayer life, incantations. Okay? And this Assyrian spiritual mode misses the mark. 
God's presence is not some wicked temper tantrum. Okay? It's not, he's not getting a hissy fit. That's not what it's about. God's presence is the chief good thing in life. So why would he ever want to keep that at arm's length? To be with God is what's worth living for. His good works and his good deeds are what make us want to be good. It's, the, it's, I mean, it's like a picture. God's presence is a picture. In the tiny moments we have of love and of happiness, those tiny moments we have of worth and significance and peace and understanding, all of those moments fit together into the picture of the presence of God. And the keystone, the central piece of this jigsaw puzzle known as the presence of God is Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus, God is with you and God is for you. And if God is with you and for you, you have the it of life. The it of life, which is his presence. Those things, those fragments that we've been tasting along the trail. And repentance gets at Jesus' importance because it's just actually a trade. It's a trade for the presence of God. Here's what it's saying. Repentance is saying, I'm turning a self filled with self for a self filled with God. I'm turning a self filled with self for a self filled with God. That's the trade. And sackcloth and fasting was the way that God's people in ancient times outwardly showed this inward change. That's this trade. Simply, they're trading, we're trading when we repent. We're attempting to trade self, our attempts at self-confidence okay, and self-comfort for a humble confidence in a God who comforts. We're trading our attempts at self-confidence and self-comfort for a humble confidence in God's comfort. By using sackcloth, this demonstrates even more about repentance. I don't know if you knew this, but sackcloth was the, was the clothing, the dress of prisoners of slaves and of the poor. Okay? This is why you wore sackcloth in ancient times. Wearing sackcloth was saying, I am poor and I need God's riches. It's saying, I am a prisoner and I need God's freedom. It's saying, I am a slave to sin and instead I want to serve God. It's the most beautiful picture that we have of this, of this trade. In verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in the ashes. We see a king step off his glorious throne and step into ashes and dirt. We see a king take off a robe, a royal robe, literally in the Hebrew of this passage, splendor. He disrobes splendor, and he puts on burlap. And says, I'm a slave, I'm a servant, I'm poor, I'm in prison. I need help. And here's what I mean. Here's the question. What in our lives are we doing or thinking or feeling that looks like what this game is doing? I'll give you a hint. That's not dressing up in burlap. Or sandwich board. Okay. I'll give you another hint. It's not burning all your secular records. Okay. What I'm asking is what social thrones 
of attractiveness, of achievement, of coolness, are we willing to step off? So that we can finally fully be real. What self-adoring splendor are we giving over to Jesus? And here's what I mean by that. What would it look like to base how you feel about yourself not on the roller coaster of other people's opinions about you? What would it look like to not take your personal stock in what other people think of your academic work? What would it look like to rest your personal stock in all of your self-regard, in all of my self-regard, in the safe and finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? What if God's satisfaction mattered most of all to you? What if his satisfaction in you and for you and with you mattered most? What if believing in Jesus got you that satisfaction? Look, I get that the trait of repentance is scary. I do. It's scary. But it's also freeing and honest. Okay? Repentance is nakedness. Repentance is nakedness. But look, our emperor's new clothes aren't doing the trick anyway. Everyone can see through them except for you and me. And we think we're the hot shots in town, but everyone's laughing and pointing the So we've said repentance, okay, repentance is an attitude of humility, okay? And we're also saying, verse 8 tells us, repentance is over something. You repent over something. And that something is rebellion, okay? So wearing sackcloth and fasting and sitting in the ashes, the Ninevites aren't just admitting that weak, their weakness. They're not just being transparent and vulnerable, vulnerable about insecurities, this isn't just sort of one of those awesome small group moments, okay, where everyone gathers around coffee and, and with gel hair and sleeveless shirts, okay? They're admitting, each of them is admitting their evil way. Each of them is admitting violence is in their hands. Each of them are turning after admitting from, after admitting violence, after admitting evil, they're turning from these things, okay? In this passage, in this historical moment, the people of Nineveh, including the king, have stopped defending themselves and stopped blaming everyone else for all of their problems. They've started saying, they're shouting by wearing sackcloth, by, wearing, by sitting in ashes, by fasting, they're shouting, this is all my fault. This is all my bad. This is all my sin. What's going on here isn't okay, because I'm not okay. That's what they're saying to everyone. I think C.S. Lewis puts it well. He gets the idea of repentance really well. And he says this. We're not merely imperfect creatures who must be improved. We're rebels who must lay down our arms. We're not merely imperfect creatures who must be improved. We're rebels who must put down our arms. And Lewis's point is simple. Self-improvement won't get us anywhere. It's not getting us anywhere. We need a rescue that comes outside of ourselves. You and I cannot fix ourselves. The Ninevites get that, and these verses, do we? Do we get that? Let me tell you a story. Maybe it's a real fun. Um, when I was in sixth and seventh grade, okay, my dad 
me and a friend from school went to a life-defining moment. Ohio State football stadium. Yeah. Okay, boo, fine. Touch your mouth. We're paying for it. Um, there, we didn't see a football game. We saw a first concert. Okay. I saw Pink Floyd live. Okay. And my junior heart and mind couldn't take it. It was a show beyond shows. The sound, the lights, the smell of pot mingled with grass and P.O. It was unbelievable. It was off the charts. But it wasn't until college that I actually started listening to Pink Floyd um, and started really listening to the lyrics. I think I started with Dark Side of the Moon and then I moved into The Wall. Um, the Wall being an album by Pink Floyd. And not just literally a wall. <laughs> what, what progress I made there. Um, not only was the music great, uh, but I really started to absorb the lyrics of, these, of, the, of the Wall, the album. And I realized that like, what Roger Waters, the songwriter, was doing was he was chronicling his life. He was chronicling his childhood and his adulthood. And using this beautiful metaphor, and you know I'm a sucker for a metaphor. Okay? And this metaphor seems cliche only because it was so good in the 70s that everyone's stolen it since then. Okay? And it was this. The metaphor was a wall. Okay? Shocker. It was called the wall. Um, he goes through his childhood as adulthood, a dad missing an action in war, a smothering mom, a harsh boarding school environment, drugs, the band Pink Floyd and all the live shows, a few bad romantic relationships, lots and lots of radio and television. He's going through his whole life chronicling things, and then there's this refrain that goes over and over and over again. All in all, it was just another brick in the wall. All in all, it was just bricks in the wall. And I know everyone kind of like, you know, says, teacher, leave those kids alone. You know, like you're yelling that in your head maybe. That's okay. But what he's really saying is he's actually building a wall of isolation around himself. Brick by brick. Every time he experiences something hard in his life, Roger Waters puts another brick, emotional brick, in front of and around him. And he's building his walls thick and high and wide so that no one can come in contact with him. Every time he's hurt, he separates himself from, those, from that hurt. He separates himself from life. He separates himself from those people. He builds a high and thick wall so he'll never be hurt again. And this emotional wall protects Roger Waters. It does. But it also numbs him. He can't feel life. He can't be loved and love other people. And I really think that uh, Waters' wall metaphor here really taps into something deep within me and I'm guessing a lot of people. I find that I often try to fix the loneliness inside of me with loneliness. I try to pave over the pain in my life. And then in the process of making this beautiful asphalt parking lot, I pave over other people. I get hurt, so I find myself making vows never to get hurt again in the exact same way with the exact same person. And so I construct an emotional wall around myself to block out everything and everyone. And that's like my coping method. Here we have it. Okay? But my guess is I'm not alone. And here's why I'm not alone. Again, we're trying to fix sin with sin. Loneliness with loneliness. Anxiety with anxiety. Procrastination with procrastination. Okay? That's how we're fixing things, because nothing else seems to work. 
college uh, later, I was a, I was coming as a sophomore. It was like the fall of my sophomore year. It was just before I became a Christian. I remember having this huge argument with my girlfriend at the time. Uh, my life was falling apart. Academically, socially, athletically. And this girl, Amanda, she was an upperclassman. And I thought she was the only thing that had left standing. Okay? She was it. Okay? I had put all of my hope in her. What she, she came to represent a bunch of things. She came to be the only person I felt like I could truly be me around. She came to be this person I thought would be an unlimited fount of approval and um, improvement, approval and appreciation and emotional pats on the back. I thought this person was the person that I could be real with without performing, and this person would give me everything I ever needed in terms of relational affirming. But clearly she couldn't do that. And this argument, classic, huge, outrageous, in her doorway of her apartment was because I had put too much of a load on her. My neediness was too heavy. And she realized that and she balked. She backed away. And I felt that. And at first I was scared, then I was hurt, and then I was just angry at me. And there was this moment, this actually happened, late at night, in the doorway of her apartment, Amanda's apartment, where I realized that there was a war going on between two parts of me. A fight, okay? And it was the fight was this. There I was, I had my wall constructed, this one brick missing. And I was shouting through the, hole, the gap at Amanda. Shouting for her, shouting with her, yelling to say, look, I need you. But then there was this other voice inside of me that sometimes came out that was saying, all in all, this is just another brick in the wall. I knew that moment in the doorway, something that I probably had known all along but really hadn't figured out in my heart. And that was that a girl couldn't solve my loneliness. And neither could loneliness. I knew she couldn't fix my sin, and I also knew neither could I. I was stuck. I needed rescue. A rescue that had to come outside of myself. So we've seen in these, in this, in these, these verses, we've seen repentance is an attitude of humility. Repentance is over. It's about rebellion. And now we finally see repentance is towards someone, and that someone is God. Okay? So we're moving from rebellion to God. Verse 9 makes that very clearly as a point. Look, this is the point. You can't, you won't stop trying to fix yourself. You can't, you won't turn outside of yourself unless you have someone to turn to. need rescue, a rescuer. The king of Nineveh expresses this beautifully. This is what repentance feels like. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. It's really like a hope against hope. It's like a faith in spite of much. Repentance is a faith that says, God knows I can't carry on like this forever. Repentance is a faith that says, 
He's right about the way I fight for myself above everyone else. Repentance says, faith says, maybe, just maybe, God has a way out of this mess. Maybe, just maybe, he can fix what I can't fix, what's broken inside of me. And in verse 10, we see God respond to our wild haymaker of faith. We see him relent. Look at verse 10 with me. When God saw what they did, the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. <laughs> the God in prophecy what seems like a certain disaster does not do it. Why doesn't God destroy Nineveh? Because Nineveh repented. They surrendered and reached for God's mercy. But how does God do this? How does he seemingly promise one thing and then go around into a complete opposite maneuver? I mean, Nineveh wasn't overthrown. At least not physically. And this is where our earlier scripture reading comes in. Jeremiah, chapter 18. When God declares destruction on a people, it says, that people will be saved or spared if they repent. That is, God promises not to destroy those who turn from badness towards his goodness. Okay? Just listen to the way a scholar and a former teacher of mine, Bruce Walkie, puts it. God has an unchangeable morality that always acts righteously to repentance. Okay, let's say it again, it's complicated. God has an unchangeable morality, and it's this, it always acts righteously to reward repentance. What's amazing is we don't get this, but Jonah does. Look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, if you have a Bible. Jonah knows all along that God had had planned to save Nineveh, and he had planned to do it through Jonah's message, and he had planned to do it through Nineveh's repentance. Use all of these things to accomplish his plan. But look, I'm not satisfied, neither you. Let's go a little bit deeper. Ready? The word relent. The word relent. That mysterious word. In the Hebrew, nacham. Nacham. That, what does that mean? It means not that God has any real internal change going on. It's not like God's repenting. It means God's suffering. Did you know that? Relenting is God's suffering. This is the beautiful mystery of God, that he suffers for the repentant, for the person who changes his or her mind. Do you realize that Jesus laid down his life for the people who laid down their arms? Do you realize that Jesus surrenders beforehand so that God can receive those people who surrender? King Jesus rose from his throne in heaven. He removed his robe of splendor and praise, And he went stark naked as a baby into a stable of this world. Here 2,000 years ago, Jesus fasted and wore sackcloth of the poor, the imprisoned, the slave. He not only had compassion on those people, he he was one of them. He became, the God of the universe became one of those lowly people. One of us. And then Jesus died on a cross outside Jerusalem. And he did it so that he might absorb God's fierce 
but just anger over the evil ways and the violence of those who repent. He did it so that those who trust in Jesus' rescue might not perish. He did it so that God and all of his just hatred of sin would be able to righteously reward a repentance that can't fix sin. At the end of the wall, the album, Roger Waters imagines this giant cosmic court where all of his past, all the people of his past, line up and accuse him. His family, his teachers, his friends, his ex-girlfriends, his bandmates. And in the midst of these accusations, the judge declares Waters guilty of making everyone around him suffer. But in a wonderful gospel twist, the punishment for Waters is to be spiritually overthrown. Like Nineveh, he's forcefully moved into repentance and not destruction. The judge senses him to be exposed before his peers to tear down the wall. In my own life, going out from Amanda's doorway that followed my sophomore year, I received a similar verdict of mercy. Mercy. Starting then and there, Jesus tore down the bricks in my heart, brick by painfully mortared brick. And he tore down my wall, not so that I should suffer and die, but so that Jesus could suffer and die for me. Do you personally know a God who has wounds for you? Do you personally know a true rescue, someone outside of your ability to fix yourself? If you do, lay down your arms. Surrender, rest, rejoice. Rest and rejoice in Jesus' surrender. Because, friends, this is the Christian life. The Christian life is wherever you are. The Christian message is whoever you are. Repent. Surrender. Lay down your arms. Because he means to die and to suffer for those who have surrendered. Father, it's hot. This was a hard message. I pray, Father, that you would use it to your glory. That you would uh, move our hearts to hear the truth of this passage. I pray, Father, that your mercy would feel like rain coming down. Thank you.